I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. That is true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss their director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Here we are at our third and final, for now, episode on <laughs> Malian and Mauritanian director Abdurrahman Sissako. In our episodes on Timbuktu, the popular pick from Sissako's filmography, and our episode on Bamako, Wilson's deep cut pick, we talked about how Sissako imbues high concept but clear political allegory with an almost anthropological, patient, slice of life rhythm and visual style. I don't know about you guys, but he's shaping up to be one of my favorite directors for sure. I would have to agree with you, Eli. You bringing him on the podcast has really allowed me to, I feel like really deeply appreciate this man's filmography. And I think us covering all four of his released feature films is like a testament to that, right? We've, We've never covered a director's full filmography before i don't know it it sort of just came about that we are ending up talking about all four of his films and i think it's just so beautiful how naturally that came to be (laughs) i don't know it's it it, for a director that's like really majorly underseen and from a not even a filmmaking country a filmmaking continent that really is just beginning to grow and doesn't have a strong film history. I think there's just so many things that makes this director and his films so special to me. And also just, I feel like just in general world cinema and I feel very happy and grateful that it just all ended up being this way. And, And we had the chance for multiple episodes to talk about this man and his work. Totally agreed. Yeah. Mm. It's exactly what you said, that he's a very special director. There's just something about how he knows where to put the camera, how he knows how to create real calm. I think for me, Mm -hmm. that's really important. I'm also glad that we're using Deep Cut to hopefully shine more of a light on his work because it's way underseen. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is how these two movies for today are in dire need of a restoration. (laughs) Today we're talking about Life on Earth from 1998 and Waiting for Happiness from 2002, which are his first two full fiction feature movies. When I was researching more about these movies for this episode, I had a lot of trouble finding his first feature, Life on Earth, at all. (laughs) I was lucky to catch a screening of it through the African Film Festival this year in New York, digitally. Was that a DCP? No. It's like Mm -hmm. a stream. It was a stream, and it was about as high quality as we have here. No, that's how much did you pay for that? (laughs) Uh, Maybe like eight bucks, ten bucks. I don't remember. Wilson dug up that file again from within the bowels of the internet. (laughs) I fell in love with that little movie. It's about a man played by Sasako himself, who has been living and studying in France and decides to go home to his father in a village in Mali, and just observes daily life there. It's very simple, it's very kind, and I think it's very alive. Wilson suggested we loop in Sasako's second feature, Waiting for Happiness, 
which is a similarly rhythm of life, slice of life collection of moments in the lives of people living in a Mauritanian village, some as observed by Abdullah, a 17 year old who doesn't speak the local language and is visiting his mother before going to study in Europe. In that way, Abdurrahman Sasako is the first director whose entire fictional filmography will have covered. <laughs> woo woo. Yeah. Today, we're going to uncover the ways in which these first two features both show Sasako's tendencies and interests early on, before his later movies, which we've already discussed, mm -hmm. and stand distinctly from his subsequent two features. We. Oui. <laughs> we've Mostly covered Sasako's biography, but I've held on to some important gems for this episode because they inform these movies especially, and they also cast Timbuktu and Bamako in a new light, in my opinion. We've talked about why Sasako became a filmmaker, but here's the thing. He offers different explanations in different interviews. <laughs> yeah, he does. And this one felt important to me. <laughs> this is from that same African Film Festival interview from the early to mid-2000s that we've talked about in other episodes. He says, quote, if I try to explain the decision I made one day to become a filmmaker, I must go back to that period in my life where I felt at a loss. I had lost my bearings. Bambara, my language, gone. No more Malian childhood friends. So I became more observant, more aware of what surrounded me, and I developed a keener sense of the importance of gestures and body language. And I wanted to tell that story, end quote. Mm. To counter you, Eli, oh. I have another story. Well, not really to counter, because I guess it does paint a similar picture. But from the Valerie Usuf documentary, I, mm. I scrubbed through a bit of that again, just to get a little more information, uh, not on life and earth, but for waiting for happiness, because I know that was not that much written about it. He tells this story in this documentary about the most important year in his life oh. where he sort of felt like he owed his mother the chance of being a good son because hmm. long story, his mother's first son from her first marriage was taken away from her by the father of her son. And he felt a little guilty and wanted to be the son that was there for her. So he moved to Mauritania to live with his mom in a room that she rented in a court. The room that they rented in the court had a low window in in the room mm. that looked out into, I guess, the entrance or the courtyard. That sounds familiar. It sounds very familiar. He spent one year there. He didn't speak the language. He felt very alienated from a lot of the people around him. But he says, I'm going to quote him when he says this because I, I typed it out. I typed the whole quote out. <laughs> it's, a, it's a short quote. But <laughs> he says, quote, slowly, this window talking about the low window. This window really opened up in front of me. I understood that cinema was something that I wanted to do. Oh. So through that low window, he saw the world and he decided to become a filmmaker. So it, it, it really does piggyback off of his quote from your interview, but I think the way that he paints it, this time where he felt really alienated, where he had no Malian friends, where his language was gone, mm -hmm. was that exact time where he was in Mauritania, the split between two cultures. I'm very happy that we're talking about both movies today because you still you have a director that even pre-moving to Europe and Russia and going to film school there already split between two cultures. Mm. There's already a director, a person that 
is having an identity crisis there. Yeah. And you see it through these two movies. He's just working on both sides. I'm so glad that we are talking about these two movies last because they feel like the keystone or the core of what he really cares about, Mm -hmm. which is how do you find yourself without a firm sense of home? Mm -hmm. And where do you look to find yourself? Yeah. That is a great find of a quotation. Thank you, Wilson. (laughs) No problem. Let's continue going in reverse chronological order and talk about (laughs) waiting for happiness. Yes. 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 (laughs) Which, Wilson, I know you prefer of the two movies. Well, on my first watch, Waiting for Happiness was the very first Sisako film that I had seen. It was my introduction to Sisako. And before Timbuktu? Before, oh, well, uh, I, I guess, no, not really. <laughs> Busted. Wilson? Busted. <laughs> we got him. Tell him lies. <laughs> Put him in podcast jail. <laughs> um, <laughs> this year, Waiting for Happiness was my introduction <laughs> to Sisako's filmography. It's someone who who, who has felt distant from his films for a while i was still trying to like get my head around how to approach a sisako movie it's beauty and it's meaning and the emotions behind everything was sort of caught with a desire to really understand everything that was going on Mm. and a lot goes on without being explicitly explained to you and a lot of the first watch that i had was me just trying to connect dots because i'm like oh okay why why are we showing this shoe now or like what is this person doing here like what's what's the meaning of it but as i ventured further into disico's filmography i i guess it became clear to me that the people in his films tell a story about the place and that story is the story that he wants you to feel to get Mm. On second watch, Waiting for Happiness, I guess alongside Bamako, have the strongest sense of trying to get you to understand something about this place. Yeah. That place in Waiting for Happiness being Nukashut in Martania, <laughs> it being a very strong, like, cry or whimper <laughs> where you sort of see the... I did talk about this last episode, this, like, this slow death of a place. Waiting for happiness really... It's like sort of like waiting for Godot. You're like waiting for a person, some, the thing that's never going to show up, which is happiness. <laughs> there is so many things being talked about in this film, being like mentioned at, like immigration, leaving this place. And if I don't leave, like Mata says, I'm not going to leave this place. So then what ends up happening is he dies there. It's really sad and poetic and beautiful how Sisko is also on another level able to construct these images and these scenes that stick in your head and really like stay with you um in an iconic sort of way but also in a larger meaning sort of way as well i i think it's just a really like stroke of luck this movie it's it, it, it Hmm. Yeah, but I I do think it is very hard to grasp or just if you if you're searching for a um really strong understanding of the plot, it is you you're going to have to work very hard. I will say that. Is this where I come in and talk about how I don't know about these films in general? <laughs> uh, 
my general reaction to actually both films, and they are quite similar in terms of their sensibilities. Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that I don't know if Sasako's films are films that I generally want to watch. Although I admit that they have some really beautiful moments. Mm-hmm. But as films, I don't know how to really judge them or to like talk about them because they're not the kind of thing that I expect or are looking for. Mm-hmm. Which is just to say that Sasako's films are not really right now anyway for me. Not that they are they need to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I admire them because they are so kind of out of step with the rest of cinema, which is really interesting. I'm sure we can find films that have similar sensibilities, that kind of low-key that you mentioned, Eli. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he doesn't really help you in terms of giving you very, very little plot and even that little plot he doesn't explain. Mm-hmm. Like, in Waiting for Happiness, one of the questions I had was just what is the relationship between Mata and Kathra? Mm-hmm. He doesn't really want to make it clear, which I also am like, that's okay. I don't think I really need to know. Yeah. But he leaves so many questions on the table plot-wise. They are such meditative films, and mm. what they're meditating on is not necessarily explicit. Mm-hmm. It's quite difficult to speak about these things, because <laughs> because we talked about this last week, where he has an anthropological kind of approach. Yeah. Right. And the thing about anthropology is that that is not necessarily interested in what is entertaining. It is interested in what is there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so these films have this feeling of this is there. Mm. And so you have a lot of stuff that feels extraneous, mm. not necessarily interesting, random almost. I don't know how to take them because yeah. it's just kind of this is the style. This is the approach to the place and the material. And it is beautiful and it can be interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just me saying I feel ill-equipped <laughs> to talk about <laughs> and appreciate these films. But I will say, like, something that sticks out to me is this thing about the window in Waiting for Happiness. Somehow, this feeling that the window is like a television Mm -hmm. sprang forth in my mind. And that is exactly kind of connected to that quote that you had, Wilson. Maybe you are on the same wavelength (laughs) as Disneyko, Ben. You just don't know it yet. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like the kind of film that you watch later in life, Mm. if that makes sense. Mm. Although I am older than both of you. (laughs) (laughs) It's very reflective. And I think you're right, Ben, that there is a sort of sense of what is there Mm -hmm. and what do these characters observe. Mm -hmm. I'm realizing also, based on what you're saying, that part of the reason why I love these two movies so much and probably above the other two Sasako that we've discussed is that when I was a kid, I loved to take a camera on family vacations Mm -hmm. and just film Mm -hmm. my family members going about the vacation. And I would make like really a too long, but like a 20 to 30 minute little (laughs) collage of what happened and just trying to find interesting moments and compositions. And I think Sasako goes about these two movies in a similar fashion where he's very observational. Mm -hmm. He's very almost quizzical yeah. and curious yeah. and just wants to show you, yeah, Ben, what, what's there? I really enjoy that. It is almost wise mini mm. in a sense. Hey, there's that link. We got there. <laughs> <laughs> it's strange to me because I think, I don't know why it's changed, but I used to be the kind of person that enjoyed films. <laughs> more that way i thought you were like gonna just stop after film <laughs> i thought you used to be a person who enjoyed film hilarious but i don't know what has changed in the way that i 
personally watch films that like something like this is kind of felt lacking to me like in terms of what i'm looking for hmm. i don't know i feel like when you get older you become more <laughs> of a hard ass <laughs> we're getting too old <laughs> and your us. brain doesn't like want to accept things anymore <laughs> i think it's just my age no <laughs> you know ben you know how in our one car y series you did both wilson and i yeah and, like summed up what we enjoy about <laughs> do me eli do me good. <laughs> yeah oh. too bad <laughs> I think what you're saying now is crystallizing my understanding of your mm. movie-going preferences. Because before this episode, I would have said, oh, I think Ben is really going to like Waiting for Happiness. Mm. It is simple, yet emotional. But I think there's another element. I think you like things that have a point and <laughs> say it directly. And, mm. and are clear about it, yeah. Mm. And do it with art and panache. <laughs> I think that makes sense. I feel like when I look at films, I'm searching for meaning. And these films are not searching for meaning. Not that that needs to happen, right? Right. Sisako in interviews talks about how he doesn't want to convince the audience of a point. Yeah. Yeah. It's more about convincing himself of a point. He mm. says directly yeah. in one quote, quote, I portray people nobody else would portray, but my intention is not to give them a voice, not to speak up for them, but to convince myself of the necessary frailty of human life, end quote. And that's not so thematic or argumentative in approach. Mm. No. It's more a quest. Mm -hmm. I like that open-endedness. I do. Like, I, I, we, we do talk about, like, a lot of, like, the, um, the naturalism in his films and, I guess, like, shooting life as it is. But I do think that a lot more is constructed than we think. Mm. Especially in Waiting for Happiness. Yes. Especially in Waiting for Happiness for... Sisiko's ability to, I guess, convey it, convey a mood or some, or, mm. or or anything. Like, I think that in Waiting for Happiness, like, the body that washes on shore, mm. like, the way that Mata sort of sacrifices himself in order to get this light bulb to work, basically. Oh. <laughs> not really sacrificing himself, but... Is, is that what's happening? I did not understand how he died. I didn't think about it like that. That's a really interesting interpretation. My interpretation of it is he was trying to complete the job that was Abdella's house that he couldn't figure out how to get electricity to. It wasn't working. Oh. Mm, I can't. Mm. He does... He, he, he collapses and can't finish the job. And Katra comes to him and tries to get him to wake up and when he realizes that Mata is no longer there he takes the light bulb himself that is lit and he brings it to the compound and he screws it in oh well, he buys the jumpsuit first and then he goes <laughs> uh, and he goes and he fixes it he buys his superhero costume Katra's got trip yeah <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to bring up a quote that he says about the fragility of life that he wanted to explore in this film please he first says that he says something along the lines of i don't have the right to speak for a country that i don't that i only feel partially belonging to mm -hmm. and he also says africa never speaks for itself but he describes waiting for happiness he says it was almost a whisper because i didn't want to shout <sighs> shouting would be almost shameful that's really yeah. He, he talks about using this movie to speak low about something, hmm. but the, the approach is to say it quietly. And I think that is a perfect response 
the your takeaway from the film then he knows what he's he, he's trying to do and and he's just it's a different wavelength mm, yeah i mean even when i'm thinking about this and i said this about bamako as well where i thought that bamako was something that's really interesting to think about both of these films are interesting to think about after the fact they might not be the most entertaining like sits to watch but i don't think this film is devoid of meaning or a point like i i see it right i can kind of like with, he's planting just enough so that things start percolating in your mind and you kind of get a amorphous sense of what he's trying to say. Mm-hmm. Although he is, as you said, not shouting it. He is whispering it and you're like, oh, what do you what do you say? <laughs> <laughs> and it has that feeling like the stuff with Abdallah and like him not speaking a language and he obviously being some sort of kind of like a character surrogate for Sasako himself. Yes. Mm-hmm. Returning to this town and not and feeling like an outsider. There's a lot of imagery there that after a while it starts to build something, like a portrait of something or a portrait of a feeling. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily saying anything too in-depth or anything too intensely, but my main takeaway is that when he is leaving and climbing the sand dune near the end of the film, incredible shot. Mm-hmm. What I find most interesting about it is his shoes because yes. he spent so much time looking at sandals and my only thought was my god that's a lot of sand. <laughs> that's a lot of sand going in your shoes and it's never coming out. <laughs> I think just the choice of footwear is emblematic of not fitting in. Yeah. yeah. Like he's wearing this western style of dress and it is tangible and you can feel it and you can see it and he is building this sense of alienation for Abdallah throughout the film. It's not something that's trying to hook you in or to, like, bash you over the head with that idea. No. No. Yeah. And he does it in so many different ways as well. Like, another example of this is when his mother complains, oh, he's not wearing any traditional garb. It's uh, uh, not the shoes, but his clothes. Mm. The first scene that he decides to do it, I remember watching it, and he enters his uncle's house. And I'm like, oh, wow, the, these look so comfortable. They're so flowy. <laughs> and then it cuts to him sitting inside his uncle's house and his clothes, <laughs> the, the, the material that is used for the clothes exactly matches <laughs> the material that is on the couch, that is on the curtains and yeah. covers the table. <laughs> it's like a camouflage print. <laughs> Nothing's working out for Abdullah. But even though he has trouble fitting in, Everywhere he goes, those private moments of observation through the window when he dances along to the music festival at night oh, privately. Beautiful moment. When he snuggles up to the woman who told him a story about a lost love with a French man. These are all just different ways of engaging with where Abdullah is. Mm-hmm. And they land awkwardly, but they're still very emotional. Mm-hmm. I feel moved by those moments. Mm. Side note, since you mentioned the upholstery and the fabric matching Abdullah, <laughs> this is also Sasako's funniest movie. Oh, yeah. For sure. Oh, yeah. There's a great moment when Mata is scolding Katra and Mata's saying, you hid money from me. What are you doing? What would you be without me? And Katra pauses and he has this adorable, guilty little look on, on his face and, and he looks up and he says, an electrician. <laughs> Incredible. Just a slam dunk. <laughs> Owned. Another little beat that's so funny is when Mata is setting up electricity for Abdullah's mother. They're outside looking at the electrical lines and she says, what's that? And then Mata says, it's all fine. 
and then it sparks and explodes. <laughs> and Mata says, that is what we call an electrical accident. <laughs> so good. Oh. Susako comedy when? Yes, when? Soon, hopefully. The more I think about it, I feel like these films will all just be better served watched in the theater because yeah. I felt extremely distracted watching both of these on my computer. Mm-hmm. And when I was re-watching Timbuktu at home as well, on the television, I felt that the reason I enjoyed my first viewing of Timbuktu so much is because I watched that in the theater as well. Mm-hmm. Like It's the kind of film that you need to be locked in a seat and you can't go anywhere. You can't pause the shit. Yeah. And then it can really sink in. Yeah. Like your presence is as important as the film's presence. Yeah. yeah. You have to match that. Sometimes quiet films like these are actually the most cinematic because... It's not about the screen, but the inability for you to control time. Yeah. Ooh. Time. I mean, that's what we imagine that films are supposed to be able to control, which is time. But with current kind of like media watching habits, that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. But certain films and certain media needs you to relinquish that control for it to really Mm -hmm. work. And I think these are the kinds of films that need that they also really need a better restoration (laughs) (laughs) i think the copies that we watched were 360p yeah which is extremely low quality waiting for happiness was a little bit better than life on earth it was watchable life on earth was life on earth was rough was rough (laughs) if anyone is out there that is sitting on a print or i just really hope that someone is taking the time to try to restore these early two films because I'm watching these pixels <laughs> on my screen and I'm like, wow, behind these pixels is probably such a gorgeous image. Yeah. I want to see that image, please. <laughs> <laughs> At Graham Brown, please save us. <laughs> You're our only hope. <laughs> Are there, before we hop to Life on Earth, are there any other like vignettes from Waiting for Happiness that stuck out to you guys? Yeah, I, I, the reason that Waiting for Happiness really like stands tall this time when I was like comparing the two, basically, because I watched them back to back, (laughs) I thought that Waiting for Happiness had some of the most beautiful imagery that I've ever seen. All the stuff with Katra, basically, like him walking the wire like through the desert is a gorgeous shot. Him finding, letting the light bulb float out and the light bulb floats itself back onto shore is another also like incredible moment. I love that little bit that Eli brought up when Abdullah's listening to this party that's going on Mm. somewhere near him. He starts dancing and I, I just love how like a lot of other Siseko movies, music sort of infiltrates everything and everyone in this town. And Abdella's neighbor, who is this mother who's teaching her daughter how to... I think it's a mother and a daughter. I'm not sure. But it could have been an, another an unexplained relationship like Mata and Katara. Apprenticeship. Yeah, an apprenticeship. Who, and she's teaching her how to sing. And, and their songs sort of soundtrack quite a lot mm-hmm. of the scenes of this movie. Mm-hmm. I think those are just really beautiful, simple moments, but it is a really clear showcase of what Sisako can deliver to us on a like a visual and audio picture imagery level. It occurs to me that Sisako is great at making metaphors or microcosms of the main condition of the movie that is at hand, mm-hmm. where 
each new vignette, like the light bulb being cast out into the ocean and floating back, mirrors something about Katra's experience mm -hmm. as when he tries to leave the town via train and is thrown off and ultimately has to return mm -hmm. and adapt. I also realize that Waiting for Happiness is probably the movie of Sasako's that has the most direct optical POV shots. Mm. So there will be characters looking at something and then you'll see what they're looking what they're... at. Mm -hmm. In particular, this happens around a little kaleidoscope toy yeah. <laughs> that starts off with one of the men on the beach and then winds up somehow in the hands of Katra and the girl who is the singer's apprentice. There is something metaphorical, but a little inexplicable about those shots through that kaleidoscope, mm -hmm. where there's something wonderful and tactile and mundane about looking through that toy at this town, mm -hmm. this liminal port city mm -hmm. where everyone seems to be either waiting mm -hmm. or continuing on or both. What do y'all think of Kathra when he shoots out the street lamp? That's badass. That's an incredible sequence. What do y'all make of that? Like from a meaning standpoint, because I was like, don't understand, but also make sense on a kind of emotional level or like not thematic, but like a imagery level. It kind of made sense when it happened and i am always amazed by films like this where it kind of operates on a like an invisible kind of wavelength mm -hmm. that i don't understand and like it kind of makes sense. it's almost like he was taking revenge against electricity which i found kind of interesting <laughs> uh, like stuff like that is the kind of stuff that i just don't know what to make of this film because like how much of it is designed how much of it is accidental how much of it was found by just doing stuff like in the edit i don't know mm, right like i'm thinking about um maka and his friend who he takes a photo with and like they they talk like i kept mixing up people because i wasn't sure who he was talking to because like, he would just like be garbed and like they'll you'll be seeing the back of the heads mm -hmm. but i was wondering whether he was looking at the body of his friend and then he was cutting to images of the pictures that they took together but then turns out that the person who is on the shore is somebody else well, so he says. Yeah. Yeah, but then later on, he has a conversation with his friend. And all that stuff was actually extremely confusing for me anyway. But there was like a certain wistfulness that still is coming across. Yeah, it's confusing yet potent. I do think it is operating on some emotional wavelength that is still received, even if it's not explicable or able to be articulated. Mm. In a way, then, it reminds me a little bit of... Twin Peaks The Return <laughs> in a very different way where I get it and I follow a thread, but I can't explain it. Mm. And I really love it when yeah. I can't really explain a movie and what it's doing to me. Yeah. I also have to mention the, the Chinese guy in this is really interesting. Yes. Yes. I want to talk about the Chinese guy. And the one karaoke scene. <laughs> yeah. So... Before he, this guy shows up in this movie, Mata and Katran are talking about this light bulb that's not working. And Katran says this thing. He, he says this throwaway line. He says, oh, the broken light bulb, it must be from Taiwan. <laughs> I clocked that and I was like, wait, what's going on here? The first time I watched it, I was like, what's happening? What's happening? Hmm. And then like a few scenes later, this watch seller from China shows or from the he's this asian chinese diaspora um, <laughs> watch seller shows up and i'm like tai ming liang 
What time is it there? Oh. <laughs> Which is about a clock seller, a watch seller, and the disconnect. And I'm like, there's no way that this is not a direct reference to Timing Liang and his filmography. Like, there's literally no way. Mm. He has not talked about it, but... Okay, now is the time when I have to drop a fact about life on Earth. <laughs> drop okay, it. Okay, okay. Drop a fact about life on you Earth. You guys are gonna flip. <laughs> this is wild. We're all gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> After the French TV station Canal Plus bought Le Jeu, which was Sisako's thesis film that screened at Cannes, mm -hmm. the French-German TV station Arte approached him about creating an installment of an upcoming series they were making about the turn of the millennium, as seen by 10 filmmakers from different countries, called 2000 Seen By. So Life on Earth is one of those movies, and one of the other 10 films was Simon Leong's The Hole. <laughs> So I think you may be right that that connection is on purpose. Yeah. Simon Leong is also all about alienation. Mm. It's true. And I think there's a really, really strong link between the, the feel of both movies. It's hard to explain, but mm. the feel is similar. I'm also glad that you brought up the watch seller because that small contained story of him courting, singing karaoke, like bringing out to dinner in a Chinese restaurant this this lady, you see a little bit of their romance. And that, as Sisako said in this documentary, is the genesis of his coming feature film, The Perfumed Hill. In the documentary, which was filmed a year before the pandemic happened, you see him traveling to Beijing and scouting locations and interviewing people for this upcoming film of his that he was slated to shoot in 2020. Mm. So it is very exciting and I, I i yeah i really like that small vignette with this guy and and, and and this lady it was a great moment it's really wonderful and he dedicates the song that he sings to his loved ones back home mm. and he talks about how he fears losing those close to him it's very lonely but vulnerable and heartfelt and sasako finds a lot to identify with in the experience of this watch seller mm-hmm I find the Psy connection really interesting because that is another filmmaker that I'm not quite on the same wavelength of. <laughs> Rip. But, mm, I don't know. I feel like these themes of alienation should speak to me somehow, but yeah. maybe I don't want the films I watch to <laughs> reflect how I feel about the world around me. <laughs> right. I don't know. You feeling alienated, Ben? I think Ben, it honestly might be like you're just not vibing with slow cinema. I might. I don't know. Even though this isn't textbook slow cinema, mm. I think the the pacing of it and the like lack of dialogue in a lot of this movie is really reflective of that. Mm. And I think it is like Sisica on his most slow cinema side of himself. In this movie, I don't find that these are much slower than the than Bamako or Timbuktu. However, mm. I think the pace is about the same, and they all kind of have very similar constructions. They do, mm -hmm. where you visit some characters here, and then you go on to a different set of characters. That's true. Move around, and I guess maybe all of his movies are quite slow cinema esque because you have that also parallel editing between different narratives which is a hallmark of the genre. I can see the argument that he is slow cinema. In fact, I would say he is slow cinema just because of the lack of propulsive plot. Mm -hmm. 
vibe. <laughs> I want to just tune my brain so I can appreciate these things on a more fundamental level rather than an intellectual level. That is my wish for myself. <laughs> Inebriation. <laughs> then I'll fall asleep. <laughs> I should watch them asleep. Should we move on to this debut feature? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk a little bit about Life on Earth from 1998. Let's do it. Eli, I want to hear about the first time that you saw this movie. Because I remember pretty distinctly that after you saw this movie, you texted us in our group and said that this was the deep cut that you're choosing. Yeah. I want to hear about why you felt very strongly about this movie on, the, on your first watch of it. As we've discussed, I saw Timbuktu back when it was in theaters, when it first came out. Then Sisako had always kind of remained in the back of my head as a possible choice for us to talk about. Then I knew that I needed to watch more of his stuff, and it was impossible to find. And this stream of Life on Earth popped up through the African Film Festival, which is a great film festival. I got my ticket, I watched it, and I just knew. <laughs> I think partially because of that travelogue sensibility that I really enjoy in movies, both making and watching, and also because it did feel like a key to understanding Sasako. I think, strangely, Thinking about Timbuktu, it feels like a bit of an anomaly, mm -hmm. even without having seen Sasako's other stuff, yeah. because it is so patient. And life on Earth forefronts its patience. There is no plot or premise being put onto this observational style. It is purely just what it is. Even less so than Waiting for Happiness, right? Yeah. Waiting for Happiness already has so little, and you could say life on Earth has less. I think it does. It is simpler, yeah, not simplistic, mm -hmm. because there is actually a lot going on, I suppose, politically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There is that same interest in Aime Cesar's writing that has appeared in other movies of Sasako's like Bamako. Mm -hmm. To me, the big takeaway is that as the world is obsessed with the turn of the millennium, here life continues, and here this surrogate for Sasako, as played by himself, is making a joyous return to his father's homeland mm -hmm. and has a wordless felt reconnection with his father and this place and the people around him and just observes. Waiting for Happiness doesn't really have a main character. It is really just vignettes that hop around and are connected thematically. Life on Earth even when the Sasako character is not in the scene, it feels like the camera is everything that he observes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I really like the personality of the camera here and how it is cohered under this character's experience mm -hmm. of returning home, being a part of it again, yeah. and is more successfully a part of the place than Abdullah is in Waiting for Happiness. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy that feeling. Yeah. And the, again, patience, I know I'm using that word a lot, mm -hmm. but it's all low-key, simple, observational, and calm. Yeah. Sisako's character in this film, the point of him returning to Sokolo is to film a movie, right? <laughs> Which is life on Earth. He says that in his opening letter to his dad. <laughs> and and, and yeah. that movie ended up being this movie. So it is extremely autobiographical in that sense mm -hmm. as a first feature uh you you really get a sense that you you, you want to try to get the strongest thing off of your chest like this is the one thing that i want to make first of all i think you can really tangibly feel the care and respect that Tisico has for his 
father. Yes. And for his father's hometown. Also, the love and the care that he has for the place. Yes. And the people surrounding the place. It's a joyous celebration of the space and the people there. And it's sort of like a look at us in a, in a, in a good way. I really appreciate it for its just calm joyousness. Totally agreed. Yeah. That also reminds me of what Isabel Sandoval told us in our conversation with her, that first features are often this mm. unpolished, clear look at what the filmmaker cares about most. Sasako cares about the people around him. Mm. Mm. I think the vignette that struck me the most, or like the scene that is returned to a few times that I think about in this film is the one where a bunch of men are hanging out, listening to the radio <laughs> under the shade. <laughs> And every time you return to them, the shade has moved and it keeps moving up until a certain point when they all decide that this is too much sun and then they all up and leave. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that is the vibe of this film of hanging out in the shade and then letting the world kind of literally revolve around the sun. Yeah. Mm. And how that changes your day. That is this film. <laughs> I like that a lot. And I think how it attaches to the rest of the world and I think how it makes sense as a companion piece to Bamako of anything is that if Bamako is an extremely dialogue or textually heavy film about Africa's place in the world and how it connects to the world and colonization. Here is kind of the wordless companion to that where mm -hmm. the world is having all this hubbub about the new millennium and this small little town is just like chilling. Yeah. <laughs> doing its thing. <laughs> Vibes. And doesn't really care. And they're listening to it, but it doesn't necessarily affect them. They're kind of just doing the same thing. And the way that globalization and technology is making a very glacial impact on the town is can be felt. Yeah. yeah. Like the photography studio is this ancient, I don't know what you call that kind of photography yeah. method. I don't know what you call that. Looks like a like a 1920s camera. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a daguerreotype kind of deal. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my favorite scene from that photography is when this guy's about to get photographed and he's telling the photographer about these automatic doors that open in front of you oh, yeah. and close behind you. And the photographer is like, no way, that can't be real, <laughs> man. And this guy's like, yeah, trust me, it's real. <laughs> that was a really, really great moment. I think the fact that this is made for this Millennium series is great because then it dates this film to show you this town in relationship with the rest of the world when you think of the world in the new Millennium. Mm, like a time capsule. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's kind of how he is accessing his hometown because he's obviously mm. spent a lot of time abroad and he thinks of this town as behind the times in a sense mm -hmm. in a kind of wistful way but it's not condescending yeah it's not not at all it's like you guys said it's a joyous kind of celebration of that kind of living yeah and i think another link to bamako now that you brought it up ben i was thinking about how the radio sort of acts similarly yes. to the broadcast the speakers that broadcast the trial that's going on in mm. Bamako to the rest of the village. Mm -hmm. And I, I also found a lot of similarities in how the people who are hearing this react in a way that is pretty non-reactive, basically. Mm. Yeah, I don't know exactly what to think of that in this film, mm -hmm. but I think it is a very interesting link between the two. Here's the thing that I find common across all of his films, radio, communication, kind of now old technology, right? Yeah. If you look at Timbuktu, 
the megaphone announcements from the terrorists also similar yeah. to the radio broadcasting yeah. in Bamako and in Life on Earth. Yeah. Um, and also the need to record and take photographs is also something that's present on all of his films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just see all these kind of thematic resonances between the films. I don't really know what to make of them or like what he's necessarily trying to say, but he does seem to have these little obsessions about how community and history is made yeah. within these towns. Like, the only way that this works is because everyone lives so close together. Mm. Like, the community aspect of it is so important because if you're not in that, like, physical proximity, you wouldn't be able to hear any of the broadcasts. Same with, like, the music that sort of soundtracks these people's lives because everyone is just so close to each other, Mm. you can hear everything. I don't have, like, anything definitive to say about it, but I think it is very beautiful, and I think it's just a great way to... Show everyone very close together. I want to celebrate a particular sequence. The photographer is taking a photograph of a lady who asks if it's okay to smile, and she does. And then you hear the clipping of shears, and Sisako cuts to a mirror where you see the photograph being taken. Nana, the lady on the bicycle, goes past in the mirror. Sisako pans left with her movement, but she is no longer visible once she passes out of the mirror and lands on the barber, the source of that sheer cutting, trimming a young man's hair, and watching Nana go past. How creatively mm-hmm. Sisako constructs the space in this shot and connects the people off screen and on to this space. There's such cleverness to this that when I think of the spirit of the movie and its celebratory chill affect, mm-hmm. I think of this shot. It's really remarkable to me. I had to replay it a few times because I didn't understand how it was working. And I thought the shears was some sort of, the photographer was like pumping up the camera to take the photo. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wait, 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 what's happening here? No, no, it's, it's, it's shears. But I think this brings up a really great point. How interestingly and in some instances trying to obscure things from you, um, how Sisiko constructs a space through shots. So I'm thinking about that courtyard, but I'm also thinking about whenever whenever Sisiko introduces a scene not in a wide shot mm-hmm. where you see everything. And yeah, I, I've said this before, but I think the most the strongest contender of this is the courtyard in Waiting for Happiness. It took me ages to figure out whose side was which house mm-hmm. and the eyeline matches. You have to really like calculate where everyone is based on how they're looking at each other and the direction that they're looking at each other. It is a very interesting way to construct space. And I think it is getting you to first focus on the, the minuscule, like the detail, and then zooming out later on to get the full picture is sort of a great allegory for how physical films operate as a whole. That's great. It's also a very active viewing experience. You do have to pay a lot of attention and construct it in your mind, connect these vignettes. It is. It really is. Also, when people are on the phone in Life on Earth, which is frequently, there is a kind of connection of space where this threat about globalization that Ben's hitting on Mm. becomes very complicated. We don't cut to or see the other end of the phone call. Similarly, the people on the phone often have trouble reaching Mm -hmm. the people who they are trying to call. So even though this technology has arrived, it 
doesn't necessarily aid in the most fruitful connections that the movie has. Mm -hmm. The more fruitful connections are the immediate ones where people are present in the space together. You know, when they're having that phone call and the guy's helping them, there's also the postal worker in the post office that has his own phone, right? Yes. Are those two phones in the same place? I think so. Oh, I was going to say, I think not. (laughs) I thought not, but there is a scene late in the movie where both calls, like there is a call from the post office. They're intercutting between both. Yeah, they're intercutting in between both. But what tells me that they're in the same space or maybe he's tricking us is that the audio overlaps. So the Mm. audio from one call can be heard while you see the other call happening. Right. You're right. If I remember correctly, I was very confused because I thought of them as very distinct spaces because he only has that one shot for each of these spaces. Yes. And then he has a scene where he intercuts people calling somewhere else with the post office guy receiving a call but it's clear that the conversations do not match up and have nothing to do with each other and i was like what at first i was thinking they were talking to each other but then it made no sense and then later on in the film there's a moment where you're looking at the phone that people are using mm-hmm. and nobody is speaking but off screen you hear the post office worker i think mm-hmm. talking on the phone and then i was like wait a minute is he just behind camera yeah as are these two phones in the same place oh. i think so yeah i don't know that's kind of how i understood that that's another example of him obscuring your your understanding of a space <laughs> with the lack of of shots but in a very intentional way i think It also makes it really enjoyable to revisit these movies and discover more. This is just the second watch, but I feel like my appreciation for both of these movies has grown so much already. I hope that we get more restored versions (laughs) so we'll be able to experience them in its full glory. Mm, I hope so. Well, I often like to leave our little series on directors with a quotation, and we've been talking a lot about understanding and clarity here. So I'll finish off with one quotation here. Quote, I believe that in the West, you want to know everything. All must be given. I do not think that life is like that. We cannot hold back on translation, but it is necessary to deprive you of something. I do believe in that. End quote. When he says necessary, what do you guys think he means? It is necessary to deprive you of something. I feel like it is an invitation to look closer Mm. because the films that i like where they obscure stuff it's when they want me to lean in rather than being explicit this might be unrelated but i was thinking about how the title is kind of a pun because it's life on earth but it's also life on lowercase earth because i was just thinking about Mm. the landscapes i was looking at Mm. and how it's different from the cityscapes and the escalator that he begins on in the beginning of the film yeah Mm -hmm. that's a very different kind of earth from the earth that they're literally standing on yeah i feel like most of his films are comedies more than anything (laughs) ben's take for every movie is it's secretly a comedy (laughs) i think he goes in on these places with a comic sensibility rather than anything else Hmm. Because, I mean, look at Timbuktu. Timbuktu is really funny for the kind of subject matter that it has. Up to a point. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. I don't think it's a comedy, but it's... It's quite light. It's light. It's a comic sensibility. Yeah. (laughs) I see what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. He is open to both the joys and tragedies of life. (laughs) 
Is that too cornball? Sorry, I was just... No, I was just thinking about Romare's take on Nazi Germany. I don't know why. I'm sorry. What? Is that a real movie? <laughs> no! What? I was just what? thinking about light, light directors making movies on heavy subjects. Sorry. Cut that out. Cut that out. Cut it out. Cut it out. Was, is there anything else that we want to pack in? Um, no. no. But if Criterion, you are hearing this, this is your job to release a box set of these four films. Do it in 4K. Plus probably the, the two other shorts that he's made in 4K. We need that restoration stat. And I know you have your eyes on him because Bamako's on the Criterion channel, but that's not enough. I agree. Thank you very much. Thanks for bringing these films to my attention, guys. Because I, I feel like yeah. I would never watch them <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Eli, for taking the leap. Thank you for guzzling his filmography, Wilson. I feel like I had <laughs> necessary help in breaking down what Sasako is about. Yeah, I just find his films so fascinating and also such a joy to talk about. Mm -hmm. If you're listening and you haven't seen a Sasako movie check them out. You can reach out to me on Discord if you cannot find a download link for these movies. I will personally find you a download link. By hook or by crook. This is not me doing illegal stuff. It's not illegal. It's not illegal. Sorry. It's not legal. It's not, not illegal. illegal. Don't sue us. Don't sue us. <laughs> Maybe rephrase that in such a way that it doesn't sound illegal. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know, say something like... If you want access to some of his films you can if you need help finding these films okay. just say finding for yourself of your own volition <laughs> without criminal accomplice from us exactly if you need help finding the, these films in a completely legal manner uh, you can join our discord server and and send the bat signal and we will we will be at your service but you do know Bamako's on the Criterion <laughs> channel, so there's that. Yes. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and Timbuktu is readily available to rent. Yes. <laughs> and actually, there are some of his movies just up on YouTube. Okay. Oh, okay. Worth giving it a shot. Hopefully, we will all see each other again in our deep cup upkeep on the perfume tail. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Please, Danny Glover, give him the money to make this one. <laughs> quickly, quickly. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Please tell a friend if you enjoy the show because that gets out the word. Uh, what, what's the best way to say that? I do think that we should start like plugging word of mouth, basically. If you <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. Ah, I Good. dare you to tell a friend. If you enjoy this episode, please tell a friend. Word of mouth is the mouth. <laughs> you your need to say the, the the phrase word of mouth in this <laughs> is hilarious. <laughs> you don't need to say word of mouth. <laughs> Blood vessels popping in my forehead. <laughs> I have to say word of mouth. If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. Uh, Word of mouth. <laughs> That's it. I feel like it needs something else. It needs something else to clinch it. Yeah, like, like why? If you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend. Word of mouth is this show's lifeblood. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you to Justine Yam for our beautiful artwork. <laughs> for real, though. I'm Wilson. 
I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Next time. Next time. Next time.